Hi, and welcome to Just a GP. Today, you're joined by your usual hosts, Dr. Charlotte Hespi and myself, Dr. Rebecca Hoffman. And today, we're very lucky to be joined by our new member or our new person for today, Dr. Ivy Chua. We're going to be all discussing leadership during COVID, particularly the rural and remote areas of Australia. And we're going to start in our usual way with our highlight of the week. So, Charlotte, would you like to take us away with what your highlight of this week has been? Yeah, highlight of the week. It's always hard to know what a highlight of the week is when you're stuck in your house. But can I say, I am at the moment stuck in my house, but have the joy of going out running every day if I can. And I am very lucky and then I get to run around the waterside. People, I think, have heard about my running around the bay near where I live. I run with another girl. You're allowed to run two of us. We both run together. Don't wear masks, but we do run socially distanced. And we just decided to change our route. And we just went through a part where you get to this sandstone cliff and you just get to see the whole cityscape. And it just coincided with one of those rose red sunrises. And it was just absolutely stunning and it felt like this absolute gift you know that creation of this is the most magical world that I live in despite the fact that life feels pretty tough and a bit closed in so it was a good reminder to me that you know this is a transient thing and the world we live in continues to be an amazingly beautiful place My highlight of the week is along a similar theme. And I guess for those listening in the future, we're taping this in the last week of September. So hopefully seeing elements of coming out of lockdown, but still very much in lockdown in Sydney. What my highlight for this week has been, has been associated with spring and sunshine and what I can do with my kids is go for bushwalks and we have some beautiful bushwalks around where I live in south of Sydney and the native flowers have started to come out and it's actually the first year I've seen these huge beautiful waratahs come out and it's not just one or two but it's 10 or 12 of these bushes and I didn't realize how they grow they grow on these big spikes that are meters in the air with these big red enormous waratahs on top of them and I'd never actually seen them grow in mass and at such height I'd never seen them grow before and that's been something pretty spectacular to be able to share. Ivy yourself what is your highlight of the week been? Normally I live across two towns I actually have two homes one in Dubbo and one in Orange and I haven't been able to get back to our Orange home for the past six weeks because of work because of lockdown So we did take the opportunity to head there and all my pot plants are still alive. The spinach that I'd planted just a couple of weeks before leaving Orange has grown. We're able to harvest it and I don't know how because the irrigation system had actually just self-destructed whilst we were away. So it's nice to see the veggies still there, the berries which had planted the year before actually flourishing so I'm looking forward to actually harvesting some things over the summer so that was my highlight the garden that was still alive I've definitely appreciated gardening this past 18 months it's been really nice 
So Ivy, I was hoping that you'd be able to start for our listeners by explaining a little bit about, we'll, we'll start with who you are, where you work, what leadership roles you have. Yeah, and why did we ask you to come on? Mm, exactly. <laughs> so I've been a GP in Dubbo now for 19 years, nearly 20, and originally came out here for a six-month stint, one of those GP placements. This was before the college stopped overseeing GP training as a whole. So it was just in that transition period. But anyhow, six months in Grafton with the first part of GP training and then six months in Dubbo, and that six months has turned into 19 years. But it's a pretty special community that we live in, pretty special people, but just a whole network who, you know, when you look at, you know, they talk about raising families and takes a whole community to raise a family. That's what we really found in Dubbo as we established ourselves and grew our children here over the years. So, yes, a GP in Dubbo. And over time, I think I've just fallen into roles because I guess my passion with medicine is to make a difference to the people that we look after. And initially, you know, that was that patient sitting in front of me. But as time passed on, it was about looking after the whole population of patients at our practice. And as time went further, it was about looking after our whole town and then looking after our whole region with the various roles that I have sort of found myself in over time. And it's probably just because I found it really hard to say no when I see an opportunity where I can make a difference. And I guess that's fitted in well with work, fitted in well with family life and the fact that I can do things at all odd hours of the day and night and week and make that possible. So, so yeah, sort of fitting in the various roles around what I need to do with both work and family. So I'm interested by you saying that you can't say no, Ivy, because we hear that a fair amount. But it's interesting, isn't it? The not saying no has got advantages and disadvantages in that the, it might actually open up this sort of world of opportunity that you wouldn't have even thought of going down if you hadn't been asked to do it. And it's a bit like this thing with leadership we often talk about. It's that you do it because someone's tapped you on the shoulder and yet then you find you're good at it. So what do you think about that aspect of some of the opportunities that have been open for you? Oh, look, I think you're absolutely right. I think one of the first things that I was involved in, I was asked to be a clinical lead for a thing called Connecting Care. And that was in the division of general practice days. And my second baby was little. I had taken a period off consulting and I'd gotten a phone call from this project officer at our division saying, oh, Ivy, could you be the clinical lead for our Connecting Care project? And I went, oh, Kathleen, I just, you know, I, I don't really, you know, have extra skills or expertise or knowledge. And she said, do you know what, Ivy, I will come to your house and I will bring you a cup of coffee. And I went, sold, <laughs> done. <laughs> so that was the first, uh, one of the first things I was involved in at a sort of a clinical lead kind of level. And I found it was just a matter of speaking out on behalf of fellow GPs in that role and speaking out on behalf of our patients 
And I guess I had more expertise around that than I had realised at that point in time. But that's one example. Another example is being tapped on the shoulder to join the GP academic group with the School of Rural Health, the Sydney Uni, locally. And again, I said, oh gosh, you know, we haven't done any special training for that. But again, you know, just having been in the region, knowing a lot of our GPs around the area, having connections that have just built over time and certainly being passionate around uh, growing a medical workforce in rural regions and giving people the same opportunities that I had as a medical student, being really inspired by rural general practice. That was that example that you know, stemmed from there. Being chair of our clinical council with our primary health network, that was a tap on the shoulder. And in fact, just about everything. My eldest daughter had to put in an assignment with Commerce a couple of weeks ago which was um, she had to video herself pretending to be interviewed for a job position. You know, I was trying to give her some input, trying to help her out, and then reflected on the fact that actually, really, I haven't really gone to any interviews for a job position. It has literally been a tap on the shoulder. Ivy, I'd really like you to be applying for this position. And can you submit your resume? Where you think, boy, I don't really have anything exciting to add on my resume but I guess by now it's it's been a whole lot of different committees and a whole lot of different positions where I've had the chance to help people out and that's what people are seeing and tapping me on the shoulder for. I'm pretty much in the same boat that I've sort of ended up with a whole lot of roles but haven't had that same I've never gone searching for a job and I've never had to go to seek and I mean isn't that That's obviously a really rare position in life, but at the same time, it's a funny thing when you're talking about being interviewed. But having said that, I'm often on the panel watching people being interviewed. So I'm well aware of what it is that we're looking for. And I sometimes reflect to myself, gosh, I don't know that I would have necessarily thought about those things. (laughs) So it is sort of weird. So tell us, how did you get into what you're doing with COVID in Dubbo? Gosh, where do I start? I think at the beginning of the pandemic, rearing its ugly head, certainly did try to pull our public health unit, local health district, PHN and GPs together for a conversation to say, gosh, we need to do some planning, guys. So there were some initial conversations that took place. Certainly our local health district, you know, and and fair enough, they they had a a lot of things that to deal with and New South Wales Health had certain things that they'd asked them to do. And so they did very much take off on their direction. But other conversations took place closer at the coalface level, and that was with our Director of Emergency Department and myself, and having the chance to just, you know, knowing, knowing the other practices in town. And and our practices, you know, we actually like each other and work well together. So being able to pull everybody together, I guess, ensure that we're all on the same page along the journey. Our PHN chief exec at the time had asked if I would be interested in being the rural co-chair with New South Wales Health's primary care community practice, which was where Charlotte and I got to meet each other. I guess from there was the reason that I got asked to be a GP representative on the SANS multidisciplinary VIT or TTS guidelines group. They're um, sort of known around town, so things like media work came into play where I was asked to comment more recently, you know, around vaccinations, getting up on our Western New South Wales press conference to talk about vaccinations and encouraging our community to come forward and get the jabs when, you know, six weeks ago we were down at a 
at 30 or 35% level with first jabs and lagging behind the rest of the state. So, you know, that was really important for me to jump on board and do, even though it was completely outside of my comfort zone, just not a public-facing person, (laughs) more comfortable at a one-on-one consultation with patients. But there you go, these things had to happen. Mid-last year, when there were concerns about people not getting to see the GPs and, you know, being too frightened to see the GPs for usual care when we were at the height of our first wave, I guess, in New South Wales. So, you know, our PHN had asked that I do a little ad for them. So, That was my first stint and being recorded on camera. Little did I know that that ad was going to play again and again and again, not only on TV, but also radio for another four months. So that was my thing saying, okay, once a pandemic, I'll do that once a pandemic. There's been four ads since. (laughs) Got a little bit more comfortable in front of the video camera inside a consulting room. But yes, there's been certainly lots of different things I've taken part in unplanned but absolutely because each time I've felt that there was a need for a GP to voice the concerns or encourage our communities in the right direction. I saw one of your videos when I was out on Broken Hill. (laughs) You looked so comfortable in front of the camera. You did so well and it was so exciting to be able to say (laughs) I know this person. They wouldn't have been really exceptionally comfortable with this but you did so well at the time and you really had a good message and came across really quite well in front of the video camera so great job. It's an interesting thing isn't it that whole thing about where you go to with skills that you don't necessarily know you had before you had to do them. I'd love to hear about the style of leadership that you've adopted, if you can do a little bit of reflective thinking for us, both in your practice and then within the town, because I know that there's, you know, that whole thing about how to lead your practice through disruption and how to adopt change and to go with where you need to go, not necessarily where you want to go, as well as taking the town with you would be a really excellent reflection if you don't mind sharing with us. I guess my usual style is to be very inclusive and to listen to what everybody has to say. My husband and I co-own a practice. We've got 30-odd people working under us, with us, around us. And when we began with a little team of 12, we were so green. We'd only just really finished our fellowship And unplanned circumstances led to the fact that we opened up this practice. And I learned very quickly in that first three months that the decisions that I was making were the wrong ones because I kept forgetting to ask people. And so our staff very patiently nurtured us, I think, on our leadership journey to, in a short period of time, the realisation that actually it works the best If we need to get to a certain place, we ask everybody about it, get everyone's input. And generally, we've gone to let's make a vote, take a vote and see what the best strategy might be. So that's how we've had things at our practice for the best part of the last 15 years. 
Things did have to look a little bit different with COVID, however, and that sat a little bit uncomfortably with me to begin with. When the pandemic first hit and we had to think about different things with infection control, we had to think about different ways of structuring our team. At one point, we went to blue team, red team to minimise the risk of the whole team having to be furloughed. So some of those decisions, there did have to be more of a, this is just how it's got to go, guys instead of a we want your opinion, let's take a vote. And especially these last six weeks. Six weeks ago when the first case was uh, confirmed positive in town and we switched, we had to switch to a no lockdown, freedom of movement, doing most things face-to-face to suddenly overnight. We literally went to no face-to-face. In fact, we had to get all of our teams swabbed on that first day because one of our team members was actually identified a close contact. So we shut shop for that day, had everybody swabbed and returned the next day with eye protection, N95s, virtually everything via video or phone. We had to bring all our vaccinations forward from the 12-week AstraZeneca to four to six week gap. Pfizer just arrived at the time. So we well, I switched to command and control mode, which sat very uncomfortably with me hated it and easing out of that now but definitely have had to change things the way that we normally run things from a leadership perspective at our own practice. And I reflect at that point and Beck's a practice owner too and I think that we probably would both reflect with you that that has been an experience that we've all had to do because you know, it hasn't been a matter of choice. It's been a matter of what is the safest way of heading forward for both our staff and our patients. And I don't think any of us like what that model looks like. Though it is it is interesting how you do start to acclimatise to some of those things. Can I tell you, I don't like working behind a screen on my face. I don't mind the face mask at all, but I do mind the screen. <laughs> and even things like, you know, meetings amongst the practice team all sitting in our individual rooms on Zoom. It's just not the same. I think the most difficult thing has been saying to people, you can't sit and chat and eat in the staff room together. You just can't. And that's felt the worst thing to do, honestly. And most everything else, I think that's been the hardest because suddenly it feels like being that really painful mother who nobody wants to listen to but an absolute must so that our staff stay safe and our practice is viable to look after our patients and the knowledge that if our practice did have to shut down that's a fifth of our town who won't get care and will need to go somewhere nowhere because all everyone's got closed books so yeah that's very much been on my mind The wider town situation also has absolutely factored in the fact that we've got got our base hospital, but the next one heading east is 150 kilometres away with base hospital emergency department and ICU. If we head west, it's 750 kilometres away. So that knowledge if we actually need to enable our emergency department and hospital colleagues to function so that as a whole health system, we can make things sustainable for our population. So that has absolutely fed into the things that I've been doing. And, you know, being able to go, well, I'm in a fortunate position where 
I'm not needing to get paid for every single second of my day. I don't have huge expenses at home. My lovely kids have got scholarships, so I don't have to worry about that. And really, living expenses in the country are pretty low. So I guess I've been in that privileged position to be able to go, okay, you know, just, you know, what needs to be done around town to look after our community at this point in time and, yeah, to go full ball and, and make things happen. Our tea room's teeny, teeny, tiny, so literally only can fit one human at a time in it and we used to fit eight or nine at lunchtime sitting there. So during the last however long lockdown's been now, 12 weeks, we moved our kitchen into our waiting room because people do want to sit around there making the cup of tea stations and have a chat. And so we've actually moved our whole kitchen into our waiting room so that our staff can socially distance while they eat lunch and make a cup of tea because it's the only space we had that was actually large enough to be socially distanced. So I I don't know what we're going to do when we have to introduce patients back into the practice and move our little kitchen back into our kitchen and not be able to sit there anymore. But we've all really enjoyed actually being able to stand or sit two metres away from each other and have a socially distanced conversation. Isn't that interesting? So for us, we've taken a a much more rigid approach. So we actually keep everybody in their own space. And I think that's because we've had a couple of COVID cases through and the recognition that you don't need much interaction to then actually affect a whole lot of staff. So we have very much zone, a bit like the red blue team, except that in fact, when you're on you really have to stick in your own room and there's absolutely only ever allowed to be two people crossing over in the kitchen area and we've got an upstairs and a downstairs and we try and keep them as absolutely separate. And can I tell you, it's worked really well. So we have not actually ever had to close down. We've had always enough doctors and it's a real pain, the cleaning that has to happen, but because it's you know either upstairs or down, in fact it's mostly been upstairs for us, which has meant that the main flow through in the downstairs has been just not affected. But it is an interesting thing because you just feel really mean because that whole social networking and teamwork is part and parcel of how you work well together and that's really challenging. So I think that's where we'll all really, really be so happy when we can actually all be in the same room again. Um, Absolutely. And I guess, you know, our teams are understanding at the end of the day, when there's a realisation that it's all about looking after our community, you know, everyone's on the same page there. But yes, it will be good. And, you know, we'll appreciate all those things that we've always taken for granted. (laughs) The fact that we can sit and have a chat with somebody, even to go and wander down Woolies and Coles aisles without feeling that you've got to go in there and do targeted shopping (laughs) or click and collect. All those things will be marvellous. Sending children to school will be marvellous. Yes, it's the the small joys of normal life that you didn't ever realise you'd have to take as being a joy. It's all been challenged, hasn't it? That's right. We've talked a little bit about the challenges we've had at a practice level. Can we move helicopter back a little bit and talk about your leadership roles at a regional level and what challenges, particularly over the last 18 months, you've had particularly integrating with new teams you might not have integrated with and how you've led and worked through challenges there? A couple of things come to mind. One of the things has been my concerns around our disability sector in our area. And in particular in Dubbo, we've got a disability organisation that provides residential support 
a vocational support, a whole range of social supports for about 120 or so of our patients in our practice. And, you know, things like the fact that they were supposed to be immunised by the Commonwealth. And it was only a few months ago and there was no word from any of the Commonwealth organisations to come and give their residents a jab. So only a few months ago, I managed to tap into our hospital vaccine hub to arrange for these people to be immunised. And it needed to be really what I wanted was just to be able to have the Pfizer vaccine. So I could just go in there and get them jabbed. And we didn't have any at that point in time. But fortunately, the hospital hub organisers actually supplied the staff as well as the vaccines to go and get these people vaccinated on site. But, you know, just what ought to be so simple? I mean, the discussions around that time was, oh, well, they can just book into our clinics. And me having to advocate very strongly to say, no, these people just can't book into your clinics. (laughs) It would be a schmozzle. You will take the whole day to get through maybe a quarter of what you would normally do. Yeah, they, they need to be comfortable with the carers around them in a place that they're familiar with and then you can get things done just the same that we normally provide flu vaccines for them on site. So that was a fair bit of work around there. Then getting the staff vaccinated. Six weeks ago, I discovered that only 11% of the staff had been immunised. So that meant doing things like I did a Zoom session for their team to do a bit of a Q&A session so that any concerns that they had, they, you know, they could ask these questions. And then we ended up booking around 60% of the staff in through our vaccine clinics. And so that's still actually a work in progress. A year ago, some physicians from our base hospital and myself and some PHN people and hospital and home people, we'd actually visited every single nursing home in town to say, look, if a case happens in your facility, what would work? What are your ideas? Is what can be offered? And at that point in time, our hospital team actually said, look, we will provide a flying squad. We'll create a flying squad to come into your aged care facility and to be able to look after your residents. And so that was the plan. Now, when the first case actually did hit our aged care facilities in town, the flying squad was nowhere in sight because they were far too busy with the huge case numbers that were happening at the hospital itself. A virtual care team were keen to provide services, but that was worrying because along with the virtual care team who did not know our patients, there were agency nurses who had to come into the aged care facilities to look after the patients and they similarly did not know our patients or their families. And so there was a fair bit of work around that to very rapidly create a model of care whereby GPs we're still able to look after our patients at those aged care facilities. But with the support of the COVID consultants and with support of the hospital virtual care nurses, and that's worked well, but it did take some strong advocacy at the beginning of that to enable that to move forward. But yeah, it did I mean, the visibility was there that if that didn't happen as an integrated team looking after these patients, our patients would not be in a good position. And similarly, you know, the families would not be in a good position. Wider a feel, I guess, from there, there's been a lot of work around COVID care in the community at a state level for GPs to be involved or the prime caregivers for people with lower to medium risk COVID. And so I'm part of a little team of Health Pathways clinical editors who are scrambling to put pathways together that 
hopefully will be able to be implemented sometime in the next couple of weeks for the whole state to be able to use. You can sort of foresee all these things happening that as restrictions lift, we're just going to get an explosion of cases of COVID and hopefully most of them will be mild, but it certainly will be way too many cases for our local health district virtual care teams to be able to look after. We've seen it right across the state where various teams are dealing with thousands and thousands of cases and having to pull nursing staff and medical people from the usual jobs in order to cope with the demand and sometimes not quite coping as well as they they probably should with the demand that's there. Yes, it's been an interesting exercise in what I, I call it, that when the disruption means that your sort of usual platform of communications and what you accept gets sort of blown apart. And I feel like, particularly for us, the health services have fallen into a lower common denominator of behaviour, which is to forget about the general practice and the significant role it plays because we're not part of their team. And I think they've done a really good job on actually getting everybody in their team together to try and deal with what they've done. But what they've really done badly is they've put the blinkers on. And the blinkers, it's like the horse where you don't want to notice anything else and you just want to get on with the job. And that's sort of what they've done without realising that by doing that, they've completely gotten rid of the value that general practice adds to our health system, not just the value that we add, but actually the foundational stability and basis for proper healthcare. And we're so taken for granted because we're the foundation, a bit like a house, if you don't realise the importance of the foundation until it doesn't work. And at the moment, we're a bit, shall we say, rocky. Uh, Maybe there's a bit of sand around. (laughs) And we're at risk of toppling over because the house doesn't realise the importance of looking after the foundations and, well, more to the point, including us. And I must say, I've very much valued your input too in the, I mean, I've done been doing quite a bit of jumping up and down and shouting into the higher levels of New South Wales Health and ACT Health, trying to get some recognition of why they need to actually look at models of care that include us rather than exclude us. And the joy of that is that possibly allow us to develop a better remunerated model of care that values both what we do as general practice, but also the need for us to be able to very rapidly escalate up into the hospital system for a very small number, but important number of patients. I think it's really interesting because they get to how large the numbers are of low risk that need to be looked after in order to be able to safely look after the high risk, but they're in no way actually set up to be able to do it. And that's what happens in general practice. And because they don't normally do it, they don't get it. Yes. Locally, when the outbreak started here and our, our virtual care team at the local health district initially said, it's okay, we'll, we'll just take these patients. And, you know, a lot of these patients don't have GPs anyway, which, you know, we go back to that same old, same old. Have you actually asked the proper question about which practice have they attended? Now, certainly, you know, that was week one. We'll take charge of all of it. And by week two, I was getting a phone call. Well, no, I don't think it was even quite into week two. I got a phone call to say, look, we've discovered that these patients need regular scripts for the usual medications. 
and to have their insulin levels adjusted and the things that you guys normally do. Can you find GPs for us who can do that? And we'll integrate them into the team. And I went, well, you've lost the whole point then of having the GP involved. You need the usual GP who already has a record of the usual health conditions and the usual scripts. Bringing another alien GP into the mix who's got no idea what the usual medications is, because I can tell you those patients won't let you know how many tablets will be that little brown tablet or the little blue tablet or the little pink tablet. So, yes, it was, it was interesting trying to get that recognition, but they did have to learn by experience. They weren't going to listen until they actually saw it playing out in front of them and so I guess that's where in our region we've landed on what we've called the parallel care model for COVID in the community that's panning out okay but yes the next step will certainly be for GP care of the mild to moderate risk patients. Well a better integrated care really isn't it because us being able to do that initial risk assessment of our own patients as you say because we know them and then making sure that they access appropriate treatment if they're high risk but also to being able to escalate them very rapidly as needed up to those other systems but yep just making sure that all of those who are low risk don't need to ever have to interfere with the flows for the high risk patients. Opportunities, opportunities which will be great. And COVID has been one of those things. I think it's created all these opportunities. But the fact that we've had to pull things together very rapidly, I think it's created visibility for our organisations, our health organisations around us who normally work at a much slower pace of change and tend to like to tick off on all the risk boxes before they venture into doing something differently. I think COVID has permitted that visibility of, okay, it's it's all right to be agile and just leap in there and have to do something to respond to community need and then tweak as we go. The, the pillars of QI, you know, rapid QI cycling, isn't it? It's just what has to be done. Absolutely. But I still wish that some of the higher level people could be a little bit more rapid and, you know, and actually see the ground through. Anyway, I uh, that's okay. That's just a dream of mine. I think. I think you're managing to coax them into the right direction there, Charlotte, much more than we've ever seen in the past. So thank you for that. Oh, no, it's a joint effort from everybody, can I say. It's not one person at all. But yes, I feel like we're over the hump and we now have to make sure that the slide down this side of the volcanic eruption actually takes us to a better place than we were in beforehand because if we don't then we will definitely have been an opportunity missed. I'm looking at sort of opportunities from a rural perspective as well and you know workforce 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 is the issue and you know I'm aware it's an issue with GP workforce across the state and across the nation but it's just one of those things in particularly our smaller and more remote towns where it is the one issue the vaccination rollout, for example, where some of our towns just, you know, no GP in town, no practice in town because it was shut down sometime in the last 12 months or 18 months or two years and nothing come in to replace it. You know, this has really provided impetus to make things move in the right direction there. And it's going to take 
continuing advocacy and it is that you know when you're talking about stamping and and screaming and I feel often when I get into a a forum where I know I really need to advocate for our community I do feel like I'm just chucking a a tantrum but you know with some words and not raising volume with with gravitas Ivy with gravitas (laughs) But yeah, so that people people know about the stories of what's going on out there and the huge discrepancy between what our people need and deserve versus what they're actually being provided with at this point in time. I think I've really enjoyed listening to you talk about the barriers of leading in a community in regional Australia. It's really inspiring to hear about advocacy, especially during a pandemic. It's been really insightful. Thank you. I think we'll um, move on to our usual way that we end our Just a GP talks, talking about our pearl or our resource of the week. Charlotte, do you have anything that you've been using or sharing lately? Oh, look, I'm going to go completely non-COVID pandemic. I've been doing a review for cardiovascular disease guidelines today. And I was reminded in doing that about the amazing resources that the college have with the handy guidelines. And I think, you know, maybe I'm just silly, but I often forget there's these fabulous resources to help us with that side of what we do. So go and have a look at handy. There's a fabulous one about the 10 top tips for weight loss which is just so sensible and got some really good practical advice in terms of not that weight loss was particularly what I went there for, but it was because it's part of obviously risk modification for cardiovascular disease. It was one of the um, bits that we're sort of making sure the evidence is there and Handy's great. I love the sleep restriction technique that's on Handy. I have funny because I really love their OA1. I'm going to do a plug for GPSA resources. I've been particularly time poor lately and I've got a wonderful registrar who is coming up to his CCE exams and GPSA have some really nice, simple one-page teaching resources that I can use as a base for developing clinical scenarios or talking to him about case studies that may come up in his CCE, which is much easier to do than developing a case from scratch for teaching resources. So there are some very good teaching resources on their website on a range of topics, particularly their communication topics are great. And I found that being much easier to develop into a teaching event for him or teaching resource for him when he's practicing for his CCE. And you, Ivy, what have you been using or looking at recently? I'm just going to have to say health pathways and the fact that, you know, COVID resources on health pathways, credit to a couple of our really amazing lead region people who have maintained the bulk of the COVID resource pages. That is going to be revamped very shortly, the next two to three weeks, of course. But our COVID vaccination resource pages on health pathways are quite amazing. But everything else as well, it's a wealth of information. And I'm not sure that people realise that they're continuously being updated. So if you kind of look into it one time and go, oh, I haven't got quite all the bits I need this time around, there's the opportunity, first of all, to provide feedback to the clinical editor on that, your region. But secondly, because they are being reviewed continuously, yeah, there'll be new things added on regularly 
over time with all the different pages on Health Pathways for different regions. Thank you. I love that. We often get Health Pathway plugs and I think even though it is such a good resource, it also is one that I forget about and I have to keep going back to and having another look at and I'm always surprised about how frequently it gets updated and how many people are working on it to update new pages in each region all the time. It's quite a dynamic page. And how thorough it is. Yes. It's great. It's just, everything is there. I mean, that's sometimes I get a bit lost in some of them because there's so much information, but it's just great. So thank you, everybody. Thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy schedule. I actually know, in fact, you're supposed to be on holiday, so I'm sorry we've taken up some of your holiday time to um, talk work. But thank you. Keep on doing the fabulous job you're doing. And although I shouldn't be saying it from a mental health point of view, please keep saying yes. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. It's been a pleasure chatting.